Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Howdy folks, this is a special bonus episode of Mysterious World. It was originally a live stream I did on YouTube on Christmas Day. If you'd like to participate in future live streams, just go to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. That's youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And subscribe to the channel and hit the bell notifications so that you'll be alerted whenever a new live stream is coming up. Ah, hello and uh, welcome, everybody. My name is Jimmy Aiken and... Um, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to everybody here. I uh, thought that uh, I'd do something different this year for Christmas because as a widower with no family, I often end up spending Christmas alone. And so I thought, you know, there are a lot of other people in that situation. Um, and, you know, especially with, you know, COVID and everything going on. So I thought, why not be alone together? Why not have an online Christmas party? in essence. And to have something to do with the party, I figured I'd do what I'm good at, which is answering people's questions. So we're going to be taking questions here. And um, to start us off, since I didn't know how many people would be here, especially in the beginning, I uh, got some initial questions off of Twitter. And I'm going to start with a couple of those uh, from a couple of Twitter users. And then we can go into questions that people have in the chat. And I see that we've got uh, quite a number of people in the chat, so we shouldn't have problems getting questions for, you know, an hour or two. Um, I would ask that if you have a question that you put like a Q and a, um, and a colon in front of it, and that'll make it easy for me to scan down and look for the questions. Um, so we'll get started. And the first question comes from Father Matthew Schneider on Twitter, and he says, I think the challenge of Santa being able, oh, by the way, I should say, this is a Christmas question, but you don't have to ask Christmas questions. You're welcome to ask questions about uh, just about anything, uh, including mysterious world type questions or Catholic Answers Live type questions or weird questions or Christmas questions or whatever you like. I'll do my best to answer. In any event, Father uh, Matthew says, I think the challenge of Santa being able to deliver presents to all good children could be solved by the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Until observed, Santa is somewhere in the Earth's atmosphere, but when each child observes him, he is delivering gifts to that child's house. So this is obviously a whimsical question, and your real-world intuitions will probably tell you that something about this is not going to work. But in the spirit of whimsy, let's talk about the question. Let's take it seriously and see how far quantum mechanics gets us. Um, in the first thing I'd have to say is that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is really something different. Um, it, it's not really involved so much in this question. Um, Werner Heisenberg was a, um, a famous physicist in the early 20th century. And he formulated what's known as the uncertainty principle. And what that says, even though people often connect it with other things, all the uncertainty principle really says is you cannot with precision measure certain types of properties 
that a quantum phenomenon like a particle, let's say, has. And a classic example is you can't measure with precision both exactly where a particle is located and where and how fast the particle is moving. You can measure one or the other as much as you with as much precision as you like. So in principle, you could determine exactly where the particle is, in which case you would have no knowledge of how fast it's moving, or you could determine exactly how fast it's moving, in which case you'd have no idea where it's located, or you could measure it somewhere in the middle. You anywhere along the spectrum, you can measure it as kind of like being in a certain area with 50% probability and moving at a certain speed with 50% probability um, or accuracy, I should say. But you have to make a choice. You can't determine both with 100% precision. Now, sometimes people connect that with another idea that you frequently find in quantum mechanics. And this other idea is, I think, one that's more relevant to what Father is asking us to consider here. The other idea involves something that's known as a superposition. Now, this often gets misexplained, what superpositions are. Um, and if you would like a good, brief, easy, or relatively easy to understand backgrounder on superpositions, you could go by another YouTube channel that I watch a lot by the German physicist Sabina Hassenfelder. And she has uh, she has some really nice explanatory videos about quantum concepts stated in simple terms without a whole lot of math. But um, the way you often hear the idea of a superposition presented, and this is not strictly accurate, as Sabina will point out. Um, but the way you often hear it presented is that a uh, an uh, an object like a particle, but some quantum object can be in more than one state at a time. And the classic example is Schrodinger's cat. The idea is you've got a cat in a box and um, and you have a radioactive isotope in the box and the isotope has a 50% chance of decaying in a certain period of time. And if it decays, it's going to release some poison, which is going to kill the cat. But until you open the box and observe or measure what has actually happened in the box, you don't know whether the cat is alive or dead. And as a result, uh, some people will explain this as, well, the cat is in a superposition of both life and death. So it's both alive and dead somehow until you open the box, you you do the observation, you take the measurement, and the cat suddenly becomes alive or dead. Now, that's not really what happens, but that's the way it's often explained. And that's kind of related to the scenario that Father is uh, proposing for us to consider here. Could Santa be in a superposition such that he's, let's say, hovering over every house in the world? And then when a given child observes Santa, he will see Santa delivering presents in his house. And does that explain how Santa is able to deliver presents to all the good children all over the world in a single day, which would be ordinarily way too short a time? Well, um, so there would be a number of challenges for this to actually work. The first one is Santa is much, much larger than a particle. 
or even an atom or even a molecule. Santa is very, very big. And as a result, I mean, he's macroscopic, just like the rest of us. And so as a result, he is not going to be uh, subject to the kind of quantum uncertainties that very small things like particles are. Instead, um, he's actually always going to be observed as being in one place. You're never going to see Santa um, in this kind of state where his where he has the kind of uncertain position that a particle might have. But suppose we could shield him from that. Suppose we do what the writers of Star Trek did when someone pointed out the problems of quantum mechanics for the transporter system. And the Star Trek writers said, well, our transporters have Heisenberg compensators to make those effects go, go away. So let's suppose that we could have Santa in a superposition where he's hovering over every house in the world. What's the next challenge that this uh, scenario would have? Well, one is that children typically do not observe Santa. Typically, children are put to bed well before Santa gets there. And the parents may even tell them that if you're not asleep, Santa will not come, that he's he's kind of like invasion of the body snatchers, I guess. He only is effective when you're asleep. Um, but... Uh, Let's set that aside, too. Let's suppose that all the good children get up and they they take a measurement, they make an observation. Would they all see Santa in their house? Well, this is where we come to another challenge, and that is that what happens when you have a um, a quantum object in this kind of superposition, so so called. Um, is that when the measurement is taken, the wave function that describes the superposition collapses and the particle is then found in one location and only one location for all observers. And so what that would mean is the first child to observe Santa will collapse the Santa Clausian wave function and Santa will be in his house and in nobody else's house. And so I don't think this really solves the problem for us because after that first child has seen Santa and the wave function has collapsed so that Santa Claus is in child number one's house, Santa Claus will then have to leave again. Maybe he enters another superposition so that he's again over all the houses in the world. And then child number two, will observe Santa. He'll take a measurement and find Santa is in his house and Santa gets to, to deliver the presents there. But this process is just going to replicate. Even if Santa keeps going back into superposition, he's only going to be observed delivering presents by one child at a time. And so I don't think we really gain any additional time. We're still confronted with the question of how can Santa deliver presents to so many children in such a short space of time, in a single 24 hours. As I pointed out on other occasions, one way Santa could do it would be by moving against the rotation of the earth so that he has more than 24 hours to deliver presents. You could um, hypothetically double uh, the amount of time he has by doing that, if I remember my math correctly. Um, but even that is going to be a stretcher. And so it seems to me the most likely explanation or the best explanation 
for how Santa could deliver so many uh, presents to children in such a short space of time is simply that if Santa has a time machine, that's the easy way to do it so that Santa can take all the subjective time he needs to deliver the presents and still fit that into the objective 24 or 48 hours that he actually has in objective time. So that would be my preferred solution to this dilemma. Having said that, uh, now I, I did say I'd take a, a, a couple questions. So let me actually take a, a couple more that I got on Twitter. Um, these, this is a sort of a two-part question from Wrench in the Gears. And Wrench in the Gears has really two questions. They're both short. Uh, the first one, in the parable of the talents, God forgave, but how come he also got rid of the penance? There was no analogy for penance in the parable. Now, the parable of the talents, I, I think wrenching the gears is is thinking of a different parable because there is no forgiveness that happens in the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, the um, the authority figure goes away entrusting different servants with different amounts of money. And when he comes back, he sees what the results are and he gives them appropriate um, uh rewards or lack of rewards. And there's no actual forgiveness happening in that parable. I suspect that Wrench in the Gears is thinking of the parable of the unmerciful servant, because in that one, <clears throat> there is a servant who owes his master an enormous amount of money, and he's going to be thrown in debtor's prison. And he, he, he breaks down and he begs for mercy and his master forgives him. And then he's not merciful to another servant, and the master reinstates the debt. And the point of the parable is to teach us that if we want mercy, we need to be merciful to other people too. So there is uh, forgiveness that happens in this, and wrenching the gears is correct, that there's no discussion of penance uh, proposed, or certainly not clearly. There's not an equivalent of penance that the master asks the the servant who's forgiven to uh to engage in. And I would say that simply because of the nature of parables. Um, parables are a kind of metaphor and metaphors have limits. And one of the things that a skilled interpreter has to do is think carefully about what are the limits of this, uh, of this, of this metaphorical story, because you can always grab little details and try to make too much of them. And when you do that, it'll lead you down weird, inaccurate, unreliable lines of thought. So what you have to do as an interpreter is say, what point is this parable trying to teach? And to what degree should I expect the details of the parable, which is a very short story, to correspond to the real world? And the point that Jesus is making in the parable is that uh, that God will forgive you even enormous amounts, no matter what you've done, God's willing to forgive you if you're merciful to others. That's what the parable is trying to communicate. And it's not trying to communicate every single aspect of how the forgiveness process works. Instead, it's uh, so it doesn't talk about needing to do penance or anything like that, because that's simply beyond what Jesus is trying to do. And it's beyond the limits of the metaphor that Jesus has set up for us. Wrenching the gears. Second question is, would the aborted, meaning unborn children who've been aborted, although this would really apply to miscarriages or anybody who dies at a young age, uh, would the aborted be 33 years old when they arise at the general judgment or would they still be fetuses? 
Well, <clears throat> this is not something we're told the answer to uh, in Scripture, and it's not something that the church has a definite teaching on. The common theological opinion is that in the resurrection, we will, if we're locked into one form, that we will neither have the limitations of youth, so we won't be immature, nor will we have the limitations of old age. We will not be decrepit. And so various theologians in church history have speculated, well, so 33 is a pretty good age. Now, that's the age at which Christ died, or approximately 33 is the age at which Christ died. And he was neither a youth nor an elderly person at that age. And so maybe physically we'll all be the equivalent of 33 years old. And maybe we will. And maybe that'll apply to people who died very young uh, in life, even in the womb. On the other hand, my suspicion is that the situation is going to be more complex than that. Uh, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how different and unimaginable our resurrected forms are going to be compared to our present forms. He compares it to the difference between a seed that's planted in, a, in the ground, is, that's like our current body, and then our, resurrection, our resurrected form is going to be as different from our present body as a full-grown plant is from the seed that it came from. And since we have instances in Scripture where Jesus is perceived by people as having a different form than he normally does or that he normally did, I, I conjecture that we'll be able to take different forms. And so we won't necessarily have a single age, physically speaking, uh, in our resurrected forms that we could appear at as 33 if we chose, or we could appear as 55 if we chose, or we could appear as 11 if we chose, or as 90, or as nine weeks after conception if we chose. So my suspicion is that we actually won't be limited in that way. So um, let's, uh, th those are the questions I promised to take from Twitter. Let me back up and see what questions I can find here in the live stream. And I'm also going to hydrate because when you're talking nonstop, hydration is important. And for people who wonder what this is, whenever you see me drinking sodas and stuff, it's Zevia. It's a uh, no calorie beverage that is sweetened with the South American plant Stevia. And I typically have either the Mountain Zevia, which is a Mountain Dew clone, or I have the Orange Zevia. And these are available in stores, at least out here in California, but I don't bother with stores. I just order them off Amazon. So let's see. Um, absurd scandal. Oh, yeah. Hydrate. <clears throat> absurd scandal says, would April Fool's encyclicals be morally okay? Say the Pope were to publish one declaring the Feast of the Force and how it's actually an ancient feast and even in doctrine as a joke. And then he's got a part two with many hints implying it's not meant to be serious. Would this be sinful or could a Pope legitimately do this with no issues such that the Holy Spirit doesn't need to prevent this? Well, the Holy Spirit has only guaranteed to protect the Pope from saying, from teaching error 
when he engages the church's gift of infallibility. He can say things that are mistaken on other occasions or badly advised on other occasions. He can tell jokes, whether they're in good taste or poor taste. And this is essentially a joke that's being proposed, an April Fool's encyclical. Um, I would say that it is not in principle wrong to have an April Fool's joke. Um, You do need to do it in such a way that you don't actually hurt anybody as a result of telling it. And a part of that will be one way or another signaling this is a joke. So this is not to be taken seriously. So I think the Pope would have to, in, in doing an April Fool's message, would have to in some way make that clear at some point, either in the um, either in the text of the April Fool's message itself or immediately afterwards, like yelling April Fool's, which is a common thing that happens. Now, if he did that, it would get reported in the press as Pope plays an April Fool's joke. And, you know, there's nothing in principle wrong with that. People might take it well or they might take it badly, but people are going to take what the Pope does well or badly, no matter what he says. And so the fact that some people might not like the joke would not be itself a reason to not do it because um, because some people are not going to like anything that the Pope says. Um, if the Pope just subtly hinted in the April Fool's message that it was a joke, then we'd have a different situation because it would get reported by some press outlets because, as 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 I know from personal experience, the press is not very good at doing its job. Most report don't know if I can. Yes, I can say most reporters are incompetent, uh, at least when it comes to accurately conveying facts and analyzing them. Uh, these days, it's, it's always been true to a substantial degree, but these days it's even worse. Most journalists do not know what their subject matter is when they're reporting. Um, and before, rather than going off on the press more than I already have, a lot of press outlets would not pick up on the joke and would communicate it as potentially something real. And if it's not made clear quickly, like shouting April fools, that something is a joke, then it could, uh, lead people into doctrinal confusion or moral, uh, perplexity or things like that. And and so I'm not saying an April Fool's joke would be at all advisable for the Pope to play. I'm just saying it wouldn't be wrong in principle. It would depend on the execution and the execution, given the Pope's stature as a teacher and as a world figure, would make it even harder for the Pope to successfully properly implement an April Fool's joke than it would be for an ordinary person. And let's see what else we've got. Brian W. says, question, Aquinas, Augustine, Pascal, Anselm, and many other saints throughout uh, thought most people were going to hell. What do you think, Jimmy? Well, um, this this is a question on which I don't have a settled opinion. Um... I I recognize that there are passages that can be appealed to as uh, sounding rather pessimistic on the on individual people going to heaven. What are the odds? However, um, I also recognize that there are other passages where 
it sounds much more optimistic. And even with regard to the more pessimistic sounding passages, um, they're they're given in a specific context. Uh, first, it, and the context in which they're given is one in which the world was swallowed in pagan darkness. So Jesus is not talking when he's asked, like, will many people be saved? He's not talking in a context where most of the world's population has even heard of the God of, of the universe. Most people have not heard in the first century of the Jewish God, much less do they believe in him. And uh, he's also not talking about um, about small children or unborn children or, you know, people below the age of reason. And so it could turn out, uh, given God's mercy and desire for everyone to be saved, it could turn out, for example, that all unborn children who miscarry go to heaven and all children who die in infancy go to heaven because they don't have the moral ability at that age to, to reject God and consciously choose uh, grave sin over God. And if that's the case, well, then um, since somewhere between, it's estimated between a, th- a third and a half of all pregnancies miscarry, that would mean a third to a half of the human race automatically gets into heaven. Furthermore, we live in a very different age than Jesus did. The Old Testament prophets, particularly Isaiah, Uh, prophesied that one day knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And indeed, that prophecy has happened. Uh, In the Christian age, knowledge of the true God spread to such a degree that basically half of the world population today, whether they're Jewish or Christian or Muslim, worships the creator of the universe. And the rest have all heard about him. And so um, so we're living in a very different age where knowledge of God and knowledge of the concepts of, of heaven and hell and, and you know, trying to uh, be moral and seeking forgiveness and things like that, those are all much better known today. And so <clears throat> as a result, um, I would say that things would be more optimistic today than they would have been in Jesus' day, at least for a great many people. And then finally, Jesus in that, in that passage is not talking about members of the faith community. He, he, so obviously, if you're, if you're one of Jesus' followers and you're uh, responding to his teachings, including teaching about um, forgiveness and, and seeking mercy and seeking God's grace, well, then your odds are going to be way higher than it would be for someone who's not doing any of those things. And so as a result, um, I would say that I, that uh, there's quite a bit of reason for optimism. The resource that I would typically recommend for someone who'd like to go into this question uh, deeper is a uh, an article that was published a few years ago in First Things Magazine by Cardinal Avery Dulles, and it's called The Population of Hell. And in it, he wrestles with these different positions of pessimism, you know, extreme pessimism, extreme optimism. And his conclusion is that it ultimately hasn't been revealed to us what the actual chances are. And he thinks that's a good thing, because if we knew the chances were high of getting into heaven, 
we might tend to slack off. And that could result in us not going there or at least not having as good an experience of heaven as we could have if we laid up treasure for ourselves there the way Jesus encourages us to. On the other hand, if we knew the chances were low, there would be an, there would be an inclination to despair and not try at all. And as a result of that, not go to heaven. So uh, Dulles proposes that it's actually um, it's actually to our advantage not to really know for sure. Um, personally, I have, uh, I think that some of the pessimism is culturally determined. Uh, and I think that as a result, uh, if you look at the trajectory of, um, doctrinal development over the course of church history, as the Holy Spirit has led the church, there has been progressively through the different centuries, and not just the 20th, but before the 20th, extending back, you see a progressive uh, increase in the degree of optimism and a, an increasing awareness of the depths of God's mercy and the different ways that it can reach people. And so I would say, in, in light of that trajectory, in history as the Holy Spirit has guided the church, I would say that some of the pessimism you see in earlier ages was culturally determined and is not something that we should rely upon as uh, as determinative of the issue. So hope that's helpful. Uh, let's see. Next question. If Dr. This is from uh, August Reining, or Reinig, uh, if Dr. Who showed up, where would you have him take you? Don't do the obvious, the resurrection. Okay, well, then I, I won't do the obvious, the resurrection, or the crucifixion, or anything religious. Uh, where would I want to be taken by the doctor? Somewhere safe, which is the one kind of place the doctor has real trouble finding. Um, beyond that, I am I am not sure. Uh, I I mean... I, I suppose I would like to be taken um, to a pleasant place, to a place that has that is safe, to a place that has interesting things to see, even amazing things to see, things that are not available either on Earth right now or in my time. Um, I also would love to be taken to um, to uh, places where I could get the answers to various questions, either scientific or historical or other things. And we've set religion aside, but I still have loads of questions about history and science and other matters that I love the answers to. Um, and I'd love to come back and report them all on Mysterious World. Um, so, uh, and in fact, some people at Mysterious World have a uh, have suggested that I may have a TARDIS of my own. So, um, So who knows what role that could be playing. Uh, Ellis97 says, which one of your tobacco pipes is your favorite? I don't have a favorite. Um, I Now, people have noted we've got some of my pipe collection here. There's a few others there. There's some I have in another room. Um, the ones that I, I that I have as my current favorites are the ones you don't see on uh, on camera because I have them right here in front of me on my desk. So uh, I tend to like uh, this shape. This is, uh, there's actually a technical number for this shape. It's 606KS. 
um, but it's a bent billiard shape. I tend to like bent pipes uh, more than straight ones, although I do I do have some straight ones, um, and I kind of rotate through them. So the ones that I currently am using and currently enjoying tend to be right here on the desk in front of me, so they're easy access. But overall, most of the pipes I have are bent. I tend to like bent billiard shapes. I like I will collect them with different textures, um, uh, different finishes, different colors, things like that. Some of them have unique features like this one, which you're able to, because it's got a flat bottom, you can just set it right down. And so there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. Some some pipes are, I don't know, from based on what I see other people smoking, it, they're not all to my taste. But I tend to have a number that I cycle through at any one time that I enjoy. And most of them are uh, are bent billiards. Jate Baleos says, hello, Jimmy. My question is, what should I do to extinguish the inner anti-Catholic that's been bothering me sometimes? Well, um, so I'm not sure, uh, Jate, of what your current situation is, what the details of it are. Um, but uh, I would say a few things. So I'd like, for example, don't know if you're Catholic or if you're someone who's considering becoming Catholic or what. But I would say a few things. Um, one thing to do is, uh, is be charitable. Um, one of the founding principles of Catholicism, like Christianity in general, is charity and looking at things positively. So even when, like, for example, I interact a lot with people who have different views than I do, and either in person or in literary form, you know, just today, I was reading a, uh, I was reading a book um, about out-of-body experiences by a um, um, by a British author who does not believe in the existence of a soul. Well, I believe in the existence of a soul, but that doesn't mean I can't learn things from her and her book. Um, and so I try to look positively on things and say, well, what can I learn here? What's constructive? What are the elements of truth here um, that I can that I can figure out and learn and apply. And in in thinking about people's motivations, you know, people, most people are not mustache twirling villains who just want to do bad stuff and cackle afterwards. I mean, there are sociopaths who get off on uh, on hurting other people, but that's not most people. Most people have um, have reasons that make sense to them and they're trying to do something good. There's some element of goodness in what they're uh, trying to do. And so I find that thinking charitably and trying to identify common ground and trying to identify um, the good in what someone believes or is trying to do uh, goes a long way. And, you know, this is something that uh, is relevant to anti-Catholic discussions, for example, because a lot of people will uh, will say, will attribute bad motives to people in church history. And they will say things like, well, um, the reason that you can eat fish on Friday as a Catholic during Lent is because the, the Pope gave a special dispensation for the Italian fishing industry. 
and thus that's like a bad motive. It's like the it's it's a financial thing that the Pope gave as a favor to the fishermen to help them out compared to other people. And well, okay, so number one, I'd say, what's your evidence for that? Because there is no evidence for that. That's not that's not why um, fish is an exception to the no meat rule. I'll tell you what the real reason for that is. But <clears throat> the um, uh, but even if it were, you know, number one, where's your evidence? And number two, um, even if it were the case, what's wrong with helping fishermen? You know, there's some good there. And think about, you know, also as part of questioning, well, why would this happen? Think about how likely is it that that something like this would evolve for a bad motive? Even if I don't understand what the motive was, there may have been a positive one. And so I would I would say uh, that being charitable, including interpreting other people's motives, is helpful in dealing with hostilities including anti-Catholic hostilities as well as other hostilities. Now, I said there's also another thing I'm heading towards, but I also said I would tell you what the real reason is that fish is not counted as an exception, is not counted as meat on Fridays, and that's because it isn't in Latin. Um, meat is a term that has evolved, is different in different languages, and what it includes or doesn't include has changed over time even in different languages. The word meat in English uh, in the 1300s, if I recall correctly, it, it, I, if I have the century right, I know it originally meant this. It meant food. And so anything you ate was meat. And there were different types of meat. Um, white meat is not what you would think. White meat back then, white food, was dairy products. Um, and gr green meat, also what not you might not think, was vegetables. And anim land animals and birds were flesh meat. And over the course of time in English, the, um, the, the, uh, the green meat and white meat and other uses dropped out so that English speakers now think of meat as only flesh meat. And based on a modern biological understanding, we interpret that as the flesh of any animal, whether it lives on land or not. But that's not the way it is in Latin. In Latin, the word for meat, carnus, means the flesh of a land animal. It does not include fish. And that's why fish is an exception because what the law written in Latin says is you can't have carnus on these days and carnus in Latin does not include fish. So that's the real reason. Now, the other thing that uh, I was going to say on this question about taming one's inner anti-Catholic is get the facts. You know, um, you don't want to spend too much time dwelling on this because it can, you know, if you're it, you can be fostering something, but, um, but you know, get the facts. When there's some anti-Catholic thing that's troubling you, do research. Look it up. Look at it from multiple perspectives and, and you know, do the research and that'll help. And then finally, move on. You know, there's only so much time one should waste indulging unconstructive uh, thought patterns. <clears throat> it's reasonable. 
uh, to take looks at things and say, well, let's examine this charitably, let's do our research. But then ultimately, it's not worth worrying about, especially if it's causing you problems and you can simply move on and get on with life. So I don't know the context of that question, but those are the general principles I'd apply. Jejak Kudus says, uh, will we have only the knowledge regarding our salvation in heaven, or will we have the knowledge of everything in the universe, like all the movies we haven't gotten to see? Well, I don't know the answer to this question. So I'll have to wait and find out. Um, it, it, obviously, we're going to know certain things. We're going to know that we're saved. We're going to know about God. Um, it is likely that we will know much more than we presently do. Now, we will never be omniscient the way God is. We will not know everything. But it is, uh, it is very likely that we will know a lot more than we do now. The same way St. Paul uh, compared our resurrected physical forms to a seed, the difference between a seed and a full-grown plant, I think the same thing is going to apply with our minds that we will have much more knowledge than um, than we presently do. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church supports that. It, in talking about the problem of evil, it says that God would not allow any evil to occur in the world if he didn't have a way to bring good out of it. But we won't know the ways, not all of them, uh, we won't know the ways in which God brought good out of many things until the next life. And that suggests that we will have knowledge where we'll be able to look back and say, oh, that's why God allowed that to happen. Well, that it, that did accomplish good. And so the catechism supports the idea that we'll certainly have much more knowledge than we do now. I would say um, that we'll have, even though we won't ever be omniscient, we won't ever have infinite knowledge because a finite creature can't have that. Um, we will have all the knowledge that is relevant to us and all the knowledge we want to have. Um, now, there's a bit of a paradox there because it could be in heaven. It's like, oh, you know, suddenly all those movies that I had on my Amazon queue list to watch, well, I'm not really interested in those anymore. So we might, we might not get to know what was in all those movies, but we won't care because we've got even greater things to think about objectively better things that are more bring us more joy than those movies ever would have and on but on the other hand if you if if we still in heaven have curiosity about oh i wonder what i wonder what happened in that movie that looked so interesting well i think we will have that knowledge um we won't have the frustration of not knowing in heaven so i think any knowledge we genuinely want to have in heaven is knowledge we genuinely will have Examine Truth says, hey, Jimmy, what's your opinion on essence and on the essence and energy distinction? Can Catholics believe in this doctrine? So this is one that I haven't done a huge amount of study in yet. I've looked into it a little bit. For people who may not be aware, this is a distinction. God, the difference between God's essence and God's energies is a very prominent feature in some Orthodox theology, Eastern Orthodox theology. And it can uh, sometimes be contentious. Um, my, my sense is that there will be versions of it or there will be understandings of it that would be compatible with Catholic thought, but others that are not. And so I think it's going to depend on how precisely you're understanding 
the essence energy distinction. Um, that is, I, I should say, though, that's not a fully informed opinion, because like I said, I've only begun to look into that area. I haven't, it's, and it's really come up on the internet in a big way only in recent years. Um, so I haven't done the research that I would need to have to have a fully informed opinion, but my instincts based on what I have studied so far would suggest that there are versions of it that would be acceptable from a Catholic point of view, but also versions of it that would not. Matthew Olson says, would you elaborate on how an atheist could be saved? How could an atheist have the theological virtue of faith? Well, he wouldn't have the theological virtue of faith in an explicit form. For um, for people who, um, who who may not be aware, the the virtue of faith has a technical meaning in theology, and the theological virtue of faith is the disposition by which we believe um, God and whatever God says because he's the truth. So if God tells you something, you know it's true, and you're willing to believe it on that basis. So you recognize God as the source of truth, and you're willing to accept what he says on that basis. Well, since an atheist does not have a conscious belief in God, he's not going to have explicit theological faith. But he could have that disposition. He could say, well, okay, if the Christian proposition is true, I mean, he might have this attitude. He could even say it out loud. Um, he could say, well, you know, I'm not convinced that there is a God, but if there is a God along the lines of what Christians propose, where he is an omni-perfect being, he's a being with all possible perfections, including being the source of truth, um, well, then obviously I would accept whatever God says. Uh, I'm just not convinced there is a God, but if there is one, well, of course I'd accept what he says. And even though that um, atheist does not have an overt version of theological faith because he doesn't believe in God, he nevertheless has the disposition implicitly so that if he knew there was such a God, well, then he would believe what God says. Um, so I think it's possible for an atheist to have uh, that that disposition implicitly, even if it's not manifesting on on a conscious level. And similarly, I think it's possible for an atheist to have implicit equivalents of the other um, theological virtues, hope and charity. And it would be through that inner openness to God, even though he's not convinced intellectually that God exists, it would be through that inner openness to the graces and virtues of faith, hope, and charity that he would be able to have a saving connection with God and be the recipient of grace through Christ without even being aware of it. And this is similar to um, the the case of, of an infant or a person with severe mental challenges who can't have uh, conscious faith, hope, and charity. Nevertheless, when you, when you baptize a baby, they have those virtues infused in them. They're not capable of manifesting because the wetware that the child has is not developed enough yet, and the child hasn't been catechized yet to have the explicit versions of those virtues but the the dispositions themselves have already been infused into the child it's just there is a problem um that is 
uh, of immaturity and lack of catechesis that's causing them not to manifest. And in the same way, I think a person who of any religion or no religion um, can have, by God's grace, those virtues infused into him, even if there is a cognitive issue uh, due to his personal history or his upbringing or his psychology or his religious education that prevents them from manifesting. So that's how I uh, approach that. Let's see. Uh, Katakam says, uh, hello, Jimmy, I'm considering becoming a Catholic. Good for you. Can I ask from a Catholic view, how important is faith in being Catholic? A Catholic must actually believe in God to be a Catholic, correct? Correct. Um, well, yeah, um, but I, if I if I am correctly intuiting uh, the what may be behind the question, um, a person can believe in God without feeling confident. Um, believing in God in this context means you accept as a decision you accept that God exists. But that doesn't mean you feel confident or you feel, you know, swept up in emotion that, oh, yeah, this must, it's obviously true. Um, this is where we come to a helpful distinction that was made by um, the 19th century theologian and convert and saint and I think one day doctor of the church, John Henry Newman. Um, he talks about in his writings the difference between a doubt and a difficulty. And the way he's using those terms, because they are used in other senses, the way he's using those terms, uh, a doubt is where you, as an act of the will, choose not to accept a proposition. So you say, I either think that's false, or you say, I refuse to make a decision one way or the other. In either of those cases, you doubt the proposition. So if you say, I believe there is no God, well, that's a doubt in um, Newman's sense. Or if you say, I refuse to decide whether there's a God, well, that's also a doubt. But it's an act of the will you're performing. On the other hand, if you say, I believe in God, I, I accept God's existence as an act of the will, then you do not doubt regardless of how many difficulties you may feel or perceive. Difficulties can be emotional, like a lack of confidence. You know, you may feel fear about, well, you know, I'm not as confident as I would like to be that there is a God. I mean, I accept that God exists, but I, 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 feel, I feel fear about that. I feel uncertainty. Or they can be intellectual, like, well, I accept God's existence, but I don't know how to answer this objection. I mean, I assume there's an answer. I assume there's a resolution to this objection. But I might personally, I don't know how to answer this, this argument that someone has proposed. Well, that would be an intellectual difficulty as opposed to an emotional difficulty. And Newman's, uh, Newman expressed it along the lines of a thousand difficulties do not make a doubt. And so one does need to accept as an act of the will the existence of God and say, okay, I accept God's existence. But that doesn't mean you have to have robust emotional confidence or think you have the answer to every objection and argument that someone might make. Um, what's what's required is the volitional acceptance, volitional means of the will, 
um, is the volitional acceptance of the truths of the Christian faith, including the existence of God, but not having supreme emotional confidence or supreme intellectual ability to interact with every objection. So I wouldn't scruple about becoming Catholic on the grounds that you feel some butterflies in the stomach or you're not sure how to answer certain objections. If you accept the truths of the Catholic faith, even if you don't feel confidence, well, then you accept them and, and, and that is sufficient for becoming Catholic or Christian if one is looking at becoming Christian. Uh, Jonathan Hosiana, and by the way, folks, as someone who's named Aiken, uh, I deal with people mispronouncing my name all the time. And so I really want to get other people's names correct. And if I don't get your name correct, please forgive me. It is not intentional. My desire is to pronounce correctly, but my desire also is not to bog down our discussion by having to ask repeated questions about, am I getting it right? Um, so. Uh, Jonathan Hoseana says, why doesn't the validity of a sacrament depend on whether the minister is in a state of grace? Is it accurate to say that anybody baptized validly in a Protestant church actually becomes Catholic? So we have two questions here. Uh, the first one, why doesn't the validity of a sacrament depend on whether the minister is in a state of grace? Because God is merciful. Um, it would be we would be in a world of hurt if the validity of a sacrament depended on whether the minister is in a state of grace. You would not know if you're validly baptized because you would have no way of knowing whether the person who baptized you was in a state of grace. That would that would lead to enormous problems, especially because baptism is the um, is the Entry is the gateway sacrament. It, it's what allows you to validly receive the other sacraments. And if you had no way of knowing if the if the person who baptized you was in a state of grace at the moment he baptized you, you wouldn't know whether you could receive any of the other sacraments. So this would create a nightmare scenario. And God is too merciful to let that to happen. The whole point behind God giving us his grace through the sacraments is to serve as visible signs of what he's doing so that he's promised if you get baptized I will give you my grace and um and so he built the sacraments like tonka trucks they do not break easily and part of that is the minister cannot break them just because the minister decided to indulge in impure thoughts last night or something and hasn't been to confession um you don't have to worry about the subjective interstates of the minister of a sacrament because it would create a nightmare scenario and God does not want us living with that crippling nightmare that would result. So it's part of God's mercy. And the whole point of giving us the sacraments in the first place was to reassure us, to give us visible, tangible signs of God's grace. And it would undercut that if they could then be instantly undercut by, uh, by the state of the minister. Uh, now, Jonathan had a second question. Is it accurate to say that anybody baptized validly in a Protestant church actually becomes Catholic? No, um, because they they are validly baptized and they are therefore put in a relationship with the Catholic church, but they are not fully incorporated into it. 
And the language that the church has used to articulate this has varied over time. Um, prior to the Second Vatican Council, like if you were to look in Pope uh, Pius XII's encyclical Mystici Corporis, um, he uses the language of membership, and he says several elements are required for membership, um, and valid baptism is just one of them. And Protestant churches, at least in the main, have valid baptism. But in addition to that, there are other elements that are needed for membership in the church, such as uh, full acceptance of the faith, and that is not present, unfortunately, in most Protestant churches, and also um, union with the church's government authorities. And that is not the case in Protestant churches. Um, you know, they're not subject to the pope. And so as a result, the, um, the kind of analysis that Pius XII provides in articulating this, um, he, uh, they, they lack, they, ha they have some, but they lack all of the qualities needed for membership. And so they would not be members of the Catholic Church on that analysis. And uh, I know there are some folks who kind of like to entertain this idea of maybe they're they're Catholic anyway, but this is not the teaching of the church, and it has not been, even on the traditional analysis that you would find before Vatican II. In fact, the whole one of the reasons that Pius XII wrote uh, Mystici Corporis was to clarify this issue because ideas like this had been coming up, and he wanted to say, no, this is, this is not our understanding, this has not been our teaching, this is not the way to approach this. Now, in the 1960s, Vatican II came along, and they wanted to approach the question from a different angle. So they have a different language for articulating it, but it, it amounts to the same thing. They're just they're saying basically the same thing in a different vocabulary. And what they used at Vatican II was the language not of membership, but of incorporation, because uh, uh, the body of Christ is a body. It's the it's a mystical body. And uh, so it's a corporis or a corp. Corporis, and um, and you then get incorporated into the mystical body of Christ, and the um, uh, my I'm not going to stop and parse and run through all the Latin um, inflections of that word, so forgive me. But uh, their point was, you become a member of the body of Christ. That's called incorporation, and you can be. And some people are fully incorporated into the body of Christ. And the people who would are fully incorporated would be, in Vatican II's language, would have the state of grace and meet the other criteria that uh, Pius XII identified for membership. So you're, you have the sacraments, you're not, you have the state of grace, you have the sacraments, you have the faith, you're in union with the church's governing authorities. And if you have all that, you're fully incorporated. But what about people who aren't fully incorporated? Well, you could use the language of partial incorporation and say, well, okay, someone who maybe has baptism but does not have all of the other elements of, for full incorporation is partially incorporated into the body of Christ. And, and I think that's a possible form of language, though it's not actually the one that Vatican II used. Instead, they used the language of association, and they said people who have other elements but not 
the grand slam, so to speak, but who have some of the elements are associated with the body of Christ in different ways. Um, and so that's the language that you'll find in the Vatican II documents. But whatever language you prefer, people who have only one element, namely valid baptism, are not members or are not fully incorporated in the Catholic Church. So um, so it would be a mistake to say they're Catholics. They're not. They have elements uh, that link them to the Catholic Church, but they are not Catholics. And that's why, for example, in the Code of Canon Law, people who have not been baptized or received into the Catholic Church are not numbered among the faithful and don't have canon law applying to them. Uh, so I hope that helps out. Uh, Meg Schreiber says, why are there different readings on Christmas Eve slash Midnight Mass slash Christmas Day? Well, um, because there are different masses and one could go to these different masses. Um, and I mean, you could do the Christmas Grand Slam and go to all of them and they want you to hear something different at each mass. And so what they do is they space out the relevant material over a sequence of masses. And that's the basic reason, because they don't want the same readings being, scripture readings being repeated at every single mass in this time period. They want to make each mass distinctive and have something that it contributes uniquely to the overall sequence. Stephen Steferi uh, says, uh, newly divorced and feeling lo long, especially, oh, I assume lonely, especially around holidays. Any suggestions to beat these blues? Well, uh, first of all, Stephen, I'm very sorry to hear about that. Um, uh, I'm a widower, so I've lost a spouse as well in a different way. And But I have been through the experience of losing a spouse. By the way, there's a picture. If you look right up there, and I know it's hard to see it from here, given the screen and everything, but that's my wife in her wedding dress. And and so I continue to honor her memory. Um, but it's very painful losing a spouse, and it can feel very lonely, at, especially at holiday time. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this, uh, to provide some companionship. And even though it's virtual, it's not the same, but it is uh, a form of togetherness. And, um, and in terms of overcoming a loss like that, and there are differences between be, being divorced and being widowed, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to pretend there aren't, there are, but um, as a general matter in grieving the situation, I would say um, it's, it, there is a certain amount of necessary grieving and loneliness that happens and, um, and it's okay to experience that. Uh, after my wife died, I found that, I mean, I found that I would get lonely, but there were also situations where being alone was a help because it was when you're carrying that weight of, of grief, it's, it's hard sometimes to function around other people. And I, there were times where I couldn't wait to get home and be alone, um, just so I wouldn't have to be keeping it all up and keeping it all together in front of other people so that I could get home and just relax, even if it meant being alone. Um, and so 
thinking of, you know, there may be some, some stuff there that, um, that may be productive to think about as part of your own personal grieving process. Um, ultimately, one needs to, and one shouldn't force it either way, but long-term, one needs to re-engage um, and be around people. And there are different ways of doing that. Um, I find now, even though people who know me know that I can, I'm kind of bimodal in how I interact with others. Part of me, a big part of me is an introvert. And so it is not a burden for me to be alone. I mean, it was when I was grieving, but it's in generally these days, it's not a burden for me to be alone. On the other hand, I can go into a particular mode um, that I, I refer to as turning it on where I, I become outgoing, I become funny, I become entertaining, and I do that when I need to perform, when I'm giving a talk or when I'm, um, when I'm uh, calling a dance or things like that. Um, I turn it on and I become socially in, engaging with people. And, and, and that's fine. I'm, I'm then comfortable in that mode. What I'm, what I'm not comfortable at is making small talk. If, if if I can be out in public, I can be around people, I can be entertaining for people, but I need to have a job I'm doing. I'm terrible at just making small talk. Small talk is like, uh, for me, is like, is fingernails on a chalkboard. But I can, I have found ways that I can interact with people in a public setting, in a social setting, like when I go to dances or when I call a dance or things like that. and. And I know that I don't have to do it forever. You know, I'm, if I go to a dance, okay, I'm going to be here for one hour, two hours, maybe three hours if it's a long one. Um, and then I get to go home and I don't have to stay in that turned on mode. So I, I get both the interaction with other people and I get rest on the other side of it. And as part of the reemerging process, at, following a divorce or any other personal tragedy, it's important to both take time alone and then find ways to re-engage. And especially in the beginning, they may be limited forms of re-engagement uh, because you may not be ready to be just back to where you were in terms of being fully engaged with other people. But I would say it as a pointer, it would be helpful to, you know, take time for yourself and, and recognize the benefits of taking time for yourself because there are benefits. But then also look for opportunities for re-engagement, especially limited re-engagement at first, so that you so that you are able to be positive and 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 productive and so forth in interacting with other people, and rebuild that muscle because uh, it's kind of like when you suffer a tragedy, it's kind of like having a torn muscle, and it needs to be exercised to get better but it needs to be exercised in a limited way that doesn't overtax it. And it, as one is rebuilding one's emotional muscles, it's important to, to start using them, but not to overdo it. And so I would say, you know, look for opportunities to, enter, to engage and to find companionship. And, and this is one of them. This kind of thing is one of them. You know, hanging out on, on internet 
uh, social media or live streams like this. This is a way to get some interaction with other people, but in that limited way where you're, you know, you're not like standing in a party surrounded by people you don't know and trying to interact with everybody. Um, So, uh, and then remember your faith and remember God. And no matter what happens in this life, God loves you and the saints love you and other people love you, even if they're not with you right now. Um, And even when they're not with you, you are still loved. And that's important to know and to remember. Detective Holmes says, Hey, Jimmy, have you ever practiced anything like the Desert Fathers? And if so, what is what did you get from it? Um, <clears throat> so I'm not sh- exactly sure what you're referring to here, Detective Holmes. Um, I... Um, if you if you mean like uh, ascetical practices, um, the the I I have mild ascetical things I do, um, but not anything dramatic the way some of the desert fathers did. Um, the thing I have done that is perhaps closest is fasting, um, and they undertook some fasts that were fairly intense. I undertake fasting uh, that is uh, that is fairly intense. I have most days of the week, I try to keep, at least this is my ideal, I try to do a 22-2 fast. And that means I don't eat for 22 hours. And then I have a two-hour eating window. And actually, I'm quite comfortable doing that. And, and that's something that a lot of people don't realize would be the case whenever anybody is fasting. Your body gets used to it. Hunger is a matter of habit. Your body turns on the hunger signal at a, at certain times of day because that's when it thinks food is available. And because that's when you've been eating, that's when food has been available in the past. So if every day you eat at noon, if that's one of your eating times, your body knows, oh, hey, at noon, that's when food is available. We should turn on the hunger signal so he remembers to eat. And if you then don't eat at noon for just a few days, your body, it'll turn on the hunger signal for the first few days, but then it's going to say, huh, I guess food isn't available at this time anymore. No, we better not turn on the hunger signal. That's not going to do any good. And your body adapts and your habit of becoming hungry at certain points changes. And that happens for me and it happened for the Desert Fathers. Um, And so even if you... Even if you might think, wow, a 22-hour fast, that's significant, or that's really going to be hard, or even a longer fast, it's really not once you're used to it. There's some, there's a little bit of transition, but um, but that can be managed, and the point is not to hurt yourself. Now, I have fasted primarily for health reasons. That was what enabled me to lose about 80 pounds. Um, but that doesn't stop me from at the same time using it as a spiritual thing and saying, you know, at a moment when I'm thinking about, hmm, do I want to eat? Well, no, number one, no, because I'm not hungry right now. But number two, I also want to do this in a, as a spiritual act. And so I'll say, well, it would be more pleasing to God if I didn't. And that'll be a factor that's in there. So it's not simply health motivations, there's also spiritual motivations in there. And the two are not in conflict because taking care of your body in a reasonable way without obsessing is uh, is also something that pleases God. 
Um, so I do have my fasting practice is probably where I would be closest to um, to the Desert Fathers and to other monastics, um, because in, historically, um, a lot of monks in a lot of monasteries would eat one meal a day, which is essentially what I'm doing, or they would eat two meals a day on Sunday um, on or other holy days. On Sundays and holy days, I don't keep, I don't restrict it to two meals, but it doesn't go over two meals. I, I don't have like a formal eating time where I go to the refectory with the other monks and eat two meals a day. So I may have a couple of snacks during the day or something, but it's still a small amount of food because even though your stomach does not literally shrink when you, when you fast, I mean, your stomach is a muscle. It, it is, or is surrounded, it's a container surrounded by muscles. Your stomach changes sizes in the course of eating. I mean, in fact, it's subject to peristalsis, which is going to be pushing the stuff through so you can extract nutrients from it. But people will say, oh, you know, after I started fasting or after I started restricting how much I ate, my stomach shrank, by which they mean I can't consume the same amount of food anymore without feeling satiety, which is that feeling of fullness where you um, where you feel like I don't want to eat anymore because I'm too full. Um, your stomach does not literally shrink, but your body does adapt to how much you're processing on a regular basis. And it will, it will send you that satiety signal, which is, it's really involved in the interplay of a couple of hormones known as uh, leptin and ghrelin is the hunger satiety, um, cycle. Your body will tell you you're full quicker based on what you're used to eating and someone was telling me that they had seen a um, a study or a report in the news that said that like on Christmas, the average American eats like 7,000 calories. And it's like, oh, wow, there's no way I could consume 7,000 calories in a given day. I would I would be completely bloated way before I got to that level because that's what I'm used to is a, is a smaller amount. Um, but it's not at all uncomfortable. So I would so uh, that's a a basic pass at the extent to which I could say I've I've I have experience with ascetical practices like the Desert Fathers or other monastics. Daniel Ward says, "Does the Eastern Orthodox doctrine of energy essence distinction contradict divine simplicity?" Well, without like I said, I haven't done a lot of study here yet, but the answer will depend on how you understand divine simplicity, because there's more than one way of understanding it. it. I mean, the church has defined that God is ontologically simple, but they were not, when they did that, they were not trying to close off discussion among the different Catholic theological schools and how they understood simplicity. So there's more than one version of divine simplicity that is a legitimate understanding. And... Um, the essence energy distinction, as I mentioned, is not monolithic. So uh, my sense is that some versions of the essence energy distinction will violate divine simplicity, but not necessarily all of them. And I have not yet been able to uh, process enough of the range of this to be able to specify exactly which versions would or wouldn't. So I'm leaving that to the future. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to make sure people who haven't already had one answered get one. Uh, religiously, uh, re- 
religious-y stuff. Question, when it comes to prophecy, does the Old Testament rule of all or nothing still apply to current prophets if they are inspired by God? Say a well-meaning visionary gets some right but one wrong. Uh, Part two of the question, would this mean he is definitely a false prophet we need to completely reject, or can a person be a real prophet nowadays and still get something wrong? So um, religious uh, religious-y stuff is referring to a passage in Deuteronomy that is often used in connection with prophets, and you'll hear it represented frequently in some circles as if a prophet gets anything wrong, he's not a real prophet. That is not what the passage says, and it's not what the passage means. And you can show that because um, you have later genuine canonical prophets uh, explaining that a lot of God's prophecy is, in fact, conditional. Uh, Jeremiah famously discusses this. Now, the most famous example of this is in uh, the book of Jonah, where Jonah um, is told by God, go preach to Nineveh and and tell them uh, my judgment is going to fall on them. And Jonah actually anticipates God's going to forgive him and doesn't want to go because uh, he wants to see the Ninevites get smashed. Uh, he's really mad at the Ninevites. But he ends up going after his little nautical excursion, and he preaches to them and says, God's judgment is going to fall on you. And they all repent. And guess what? God does forgive them. And Jonah gets mad because, see, you forgave them. Well, God's point is, look, this is a big city. There are all these people there. I care about them. And they repented. And so this is an example where uh, a prophecy was given, and it was a true prophecy, but it had a hidden, it had an unstated condition. The condition being, if you repent, I'll forgive you. But otherwise, if they had not repented, God's judgment would have fallen. And Jeremiah makes this clear. Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of God, says, if at any time I say I'm going to bless a nation and they fall into sin, I'm going to cancel the blessing. And if at any time I say I'm going to curse a nation and they repent, I'm going to cancel the curse. And so, and and when you begin looking at the way prophecy works in concrete cases in the Old Testament, you find this is this this is really the norm. Um, the norm is to provide for prophecy in the Old Testament is to provide practical guidance to people in concrete historical situations. This is what's going to happen based on what you've done. But if you change, then what's going to happen will change. And so, uh, so prophecy is not understood in the biblical context the way it is frequently presented today. So uh, even in the Bible, if a prophet says something's going to happen and it doesn't, well, there can be reasons like, well, the people of Nineveh repented. On the other hand, that's not a get out of prophetic purgatory jail free card, because um, you can't just use that as an excuse and say, oh, um, the second coming is going to happen next Tuesday. And and then when Christ doesn't come next Tuesday, you don't get to say, oh, well, I guess all the all the all the sinners repented. And so Jesus decided to put it off. 
when there has been no material shift in how the world has been working. There's been no evidence of mass repentance on the part of sinners. And so you have a, would have a rational basis for saying he decided to put it off. Um, the To answer the question uh, for religious stuff concisely, um, both of these, the lack of fulfillment and the and the mutability of prophecy have to be taken both of these principles have to be taken into account when forming an uh, appraisal of a given person engaged in prophetic activity whether that's in the bible or whether that's today and i plan i've been devoting thought to how to how to articulate and navigate this recently i've also recently been uh purchasing some additional resources uh, some books that have been written and so forth on this subject uh for my own researches and i plan on discussing this in depth in a future mysterious world episode I am, says question, I know this is very broad, but how would you respond to Robertson Genesis' view of the consecration of Russia? I would respond by saying that Sister Lucia herself said that the consecration was done. And she had not come to that easily. Uh, there were situations where she said, sorry, the, the right conditions were not fulfilled. She she more than once indicated that the consecration had not been done. But uh, after John Paul II did his second consecration, they uh, communicated with Sister Lucia and she herself said, yes, this time it was accepted in heaven and uh, it, the right conditions were fulfilled. Maybe not as dramatically as they could be, but sufficiently. And so I would say that uh, that um, that Sister Lucia herself confirmed it, and I don't I, I I I trust her interpretation of whether her prophetic request was fulfilled. I mean, she's in the best position to know. She's the one in touch with Mary, um, and so I would say we should defer to her on that. Also, when you understand what the Fatima prophecy concerning Russia meant because it said Russia was going to be converted. It didn't say converted to Catholicism as she clear it convert means change your behavior. And in context, she was saying, well, Russia is going to spread her errors throughout the world. And um, that's a reference to the, you know, attempt to promote communism abroad. And uh, and Sister Lucia, in later interviews, which I have copies of, because uh, I paid a lot of money to get a low-run edition book of interviews with her, um, she confirmed, yeah, it's Russia has been converted. It's no longer spreading international communism. So uh, that's what the prophecy meant. It didn't mean it was going to become some Catholic wonderland or something. That's not what the prophecy meant. So um, she, it, it was indicated that uh, the Pope would consecrate Russia, and this would happen in connection with its conversion. John Paul II uh, did the consecration. She said it had been accepted. And within just, within less than a decade, communism falls in Russia and its conversion happens. So I would say the evidence based on Sister Lucia's own interpretation of her own prophecy is this has been done. And the to the extent the externally verifiable evidence, like is Russia spreading international communism anymore, um, is accessible, it confirms that. Wesley Conway says, uh, some say that after the new creation and renewal of all reality, 
God won't be creating anything out of nothing anymore. So creation will be completely finished. Is this doctrine? No, this is not doctrine. Um, it's a, it would be a, the church does not have a teaching of one day God is going to cease to create things ex, ex nihilo. In fact, um, it, it's theologically problematic. Now, you could say he won't create anything new ex nihilo, which is what I assume this would be understood to mean. But in a sense, he is constantly creating everything ex nihilo because he sustains everything in existence. And as John Paul II pointed out, this is a form of ongoing creation. So not only did God create the universe and all it contained in the beginning, he is applying that same creative energy to sustain it in existence throughout its history. And so that's actually a form. Uh, it's not the same, but it is a form of ongoing creation ex nihilo, because otherwise we'd fall back into nothing. We would be annihilated. We would go ad nihilo, to nothing. Um, and so, But you could say, well, maybe at a certain point he will only sustain things. He won't be making anything new out of nothing. Um, and so creation will be finished in that sense. Well, you could speculate that. That's not the church's teaching. Uh, you're not going to find that taught by an ecumenical council or by the current magisterium or anything like that. I would put that in the category of theological opinion and thus theological speculation. Vasilias says, what about Santa deniers when they get presents from Santa? Um, well, so. Uh, I would say Santa deniers who have apparently gotten presents from Santa would have other ways of explaining how those presents appeared. And it would then be a matter of discernment and critical thinking to decide whether the Santa hypothesis or rival hypotheses would best explain the appearance of the presents. The first other says, could God convert an atheist who grew up nominally Catholic to become a Protestant pastor supernaturally. Uh, Kreeft, I assume meaning Peter Kreeft, has a story of a nominal Catholic atheist student who nearly ended himself, but God supernaturally appeared as a pink hippo because he was so far gone and told him to repent, accept Jesus, become a pastor, and save souls. So God didn't tell him to become Catholic again. And the question is, can God supernaturally tell someone to come back to the Christian faith in general, as a pastor, even though Catholicism is the fullness of truth. So um, it seems to me that there are a couple of things that could be at work in this kind of situation, assuming it's supernatural, which is the question, could this be supernatural? So we're going to assume it's supernatural and then think of explanations for how it could work. And if we can't find any explanations for how it could work, then we would revert to the no, this is impossible hypothesis. Um, so are there ways where this could be a genuine supernatural experience and it could it, it could work? Well, it seems to me the first thing that's relevant here is the consciousness of the recipient of the revelation, because God always accommodates. We are not capable of fully comprehending divine mysteries. And as a result, um, we draw upon when we are touched by grace in a way that results in us receiving infused knowledge. Um, we process that through our own intellectual and cultural backgrounds. And um, 
And that means, and the church acknowledges this, you'll find this in the, um, in the uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith document on discerning apparitions. Um, it, it talks about the fact that the consciousness of the seer may introduce elements into the experience. And so it, I could see how that could have an effect here. Maybe the, the message God is sending the, the person as he's calling them back to faith is a, you need to come back and you need to help bring other souls to me. And because of something in the seer's consciousness, you, you know, subconsciously or whatever, that gets interpreted as you need to become a Protestant pastor. So God wasn't telling the person to become a Protestant pastor, but um, he was telling the person, come back to me and bring others to me. And that got processed on the human level as you need to come back and you need to become a Protestant pastor. So that's one way that this individual could have a genuine supernatural experience um, of God calling them back and calling them to save souls without signing off on every little detail in the perception of what this person ex experienced. Now, there's a second hypothesis that uh, is worth thinking about in this connection, which is that God leads us in stages. And God does not communicate the fullness of his truth all at once to people. Uh, we see this very clearly in the history of, uh, in biblical history, Jesus himself makes this point that uh, at the time of Moses, the, because the Israelites' hearts were hard, God blessed but regulated certain practices they had that were not God's ideal and were not ultimately what God wanted, but he was willing to accept them for a time. And then as he as he disclosed more about himself and his ways to the Israelites, he clarified what the fullness of his will was. And if you look back at some of those passages in the Old Testament, you could think, oh, God's approving of this. Well, really, no, he's tolerating this. And if you read the passage carefully, you will see <clears throat> that um, he is actually regulating it to make it less bad than it would otherwise be on the way to giving them a full abolition of just don't do this. And um, and the classic example of that is the regulation of divorce, which then, and, and Jesus, when he's come as God's son to give us the full revelation for the Christian age, he says, that's just not God's will to divorce and remarry somebody um, if you were validly married to them. Now, um, Jesus himself, in educating the 12 disciples. He tells them in John's gospel, I have many things to say to you that you cannot now bear. And so Jesus himself has a form of progressive revelation where he reveals certain things about God's truth to them, but not everything all at once. And so it's natural to say, well, in the case of, of God communicating with someone and, uh, and saying, I, I want you to go here and minister, you know, um, there's an, because Protestantism shares many elements of the, of the faith, 
unfortunately, not all of them, but many of them and the core ones, you know, the Trinity, Jesus, his death on the cross, all that. Um, it, it, I, it, it seems to me that in, in bringing along that individual person back from a position of atheism to the fullness of truth that that person will have in heaven, can God bring them back in stages and say, I want you to go here and get some experience and do some ministry for me as part of a larger project of bringing the person into the fullness of, of, of Catholic truth. Well, it's not clear to me that God couldn't have way stations um, for a person on their personal journey, the same way he had sort of prophetic way stations uh, in terms of revealing himself and his will for the Israelites, or as Christ did for the disciples. Um, he could be endorsing the positives that lead to a particular way station or that are involved in a particular way station without implying you need to stay forever at this way station, and that is the fullness of my will. The latter would be untrue and therefore is not something God could say. But God could say, because he knows a person, it will help the person get back to him. I mean, let's, for example, let's suppose there are two churches in, in town. Let's suppose it's a small town in Minnesota, and there are two churches in town, and there are a Catholic church and a Lutheran church. And the pastor of the Catholic church is totally incompetent and is not at all prepared or equipped to um, help a person who's in this recovering atheist's position. Uh, if, if the recovering atheist goes to the Catholic Church because of the limitations of that parish, he's, he's not going to get what he needs. He's going to walk away again. But the pastor of the Lutheran Church happens to be talented with helping people who are like this uh, recovering atheist. And so if the Catholic, if the recovering atheist goes to the Lutheran Church, he will get the answers he needs and the compassion he needs and things like that, and will be able to re-embrace the active practice of the Christian faith. It's unfortunately not the fullness of the Catholic faith, but he will be able to get that far. And so could God, um, you know, just on the level of which of these two churches should you start going back to immediately, um, God could say, why don't you go to the Lutheran one? Not implying that the Lutheran one is his final destination, but just that that's where he needs to go now to get the help he needs now. Well, I can't rule out that God could do that. I mean, God is omnipotent, and so he can do anything that's not logically impossible. I am not seeing it logically being logically impossible to say God could lead a person to him without implying anything false. God could lead a person to himself via way stations in this manner. So God would not be implying Lutheranism is where you need to stay, but he could be implying you need to go there now for the moment until you get, say, further instructions, in which point he may have reacquired enough uh, background in the Christian faith that he's willing to go face the incompetent Catholic priest or something like that. Or maybe the Catholic priest gets replaced by a more competent one and he goes there then. So, um, so that's, a bit of a meditation on that, but I hope that's uh, I hope that's helpful. S. Medrano says, uh, "Oh, uh, Michel Bupre says, did God create time? Yes, time is a creation of God. It did not exist apart from God creating it." 
S. Medrano says, uh, there are atheists that believe in CE5 remote viewing spiritual orbs. Okay, it's not actually a question. Uh, I guess maybe he's wondering, what would I think of that? I should explain. Um, So uh, there are atheists. Well, we know what atheists are. Um, that believe in CE5. Okay, so what CE5 is, it's an abbreviation. It stands for Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. And what this is, this is not widely believed in the UFO community. So do not attribute this to everybody. But there are certain people in the in the UFO community who believe it is possible to uh, summon UFOs and have them show up. So they will say we can do a variety of meditation practices that will allow us to send a telepathic request to aliens. And then the aliens who are favorably disposed will come and show up. So a bunch of us could say, go out on the beach and uh, meditate together and invite the aliens to come and show themselves to us. And if the aliens are disposed, they will do that. And and there are people who, who claim this. Um, now, they will also claim something else, which is uh, which is remote viewing. Now, remote viewing is a completely different thing. Remote, remote viewing is a reported psychic ability to pick up impressions about distant objects or things. And um, and this was the basis of a program that the uh, Defense Department had in the between the 1970s and the 1990s. And. Actually, they're still doing some of this today, um, but the uh, they're not talking. This part isn't declassified, though, um, the way the 70s to 90s program was. That program was called Stargate, has nothing to do with the sh- TV show or the movie. Um, it actually had the name and uh, on a classified basis before the TV show and the movie. But um, they would have uh, people. Um, some of them in the Defense Department itself, also some civilians who would uh, attempt to uh, use a particular methodology to remotely view various targets and to collect intelligence uh, against the Soviets and the Chinese and international terrorists and drug smugglers and people like that. And uh, I've talked about that some on Mysterious World. Well, okay. in especially in the 1990s, uh, word of this procedure, this remote viewing technique, began to get out publicly. And eventually, these documents were declassified, and it's well known, and you can read them for yourself. CIA's got them right there on its website, and there are you know, books you can get on Amazon that reprint these documents. Um, and, and so there are a lot of people who have said, oh, wow. Uh, let's try this. And you have a lot of remote viewers who are very sincere. Well, um, there also are people who want to make a buck and will cash in on anything that's trendy. And remote viewing is, to some extent, trendy. And so there are bottom feeders in the UFO uh, world who have said, well, let's see. Let's uh, let's see what we can do to combine these ideas. So we're going to attempt to telepathically contact aliens and invite them in, and uh, and we're going to ha- tell everybody, okay, now we're going to remote view 
the aliens as see what they're doing as part of our communication with them. We're going to look inside their ships and we're going to do that. And, and, and we're going to wait for them to show up. And we're also, because we want these people who are paying us a lot of money to come out on this excursion on the beach, we're going to hire a plane to fly offshore and drop flares in the distance to make it look like there are glowing orbs showing up in response to our telepathic summons. And so, yeah, there, I'm sure there are atheists and non-atheists who believe that uh, close encounters of the fifth kind experiences where you remote view these orbs and there's something spiritual going on. I'm sure there are atheists who believe that and non-atheists who believe that. Um, and what they uh, are actually doing is watching flares being dropped from a distant plane that has been hired to stage this event. And we will be talking about that in February on Mysterious World and naming names. So uh, hope that is uh, of, of some interest. Let's see, wanting to make sure that I'm, I'm looking for questions for people who haven't asked one yet. Michelina Roos, could you please recommend some good sources, websites, books, etc., that deal with scientific topics, quantum physics, etc., that it is best to know more about when doing apologetics? Um, and then she also says, will you be doing a Mysterious World episode on the question of what the mind is and how it relates to the soul? Uh, thank you much, and Merry Christmas. Um, Merry Christmas to you too, uh, Michelina. And um, I, you know, I have various aspects of the mind and the soul on the big topic list, which has like seventeen hundred topics on it right now. Um, and at some, and we certainly will have discussed aspects of that in the past, and we'll discuss aspects of it in the future. I don't know yet if we'll have one specifically on that question, but it, you know, it 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 does relate to various things in terms of uh, resources on scientific topics that are good to know about when doing apologetics. Um, so I tend to go to. I, I mean, there are any number of them. Um, the areas scientifically that come up most often apologetically are not things like quantum mechanics. Uh, the ones that come up uh, most of the time are origins science. So it, like uh, the Big Bang, evolution, um, things like that. Uh, also knowledge of astronomy and, you know, like the the Copernican revolution, Galileo, that kind of stuff comes up a lot apologetically in, and on the, um, in, in terms of resources, I would suggest going to episodes because uh, I'm trying to work my way through a lot of these issues on mysterious world. And I would suggest that consulting those episodes and looking in the further resources will give you good leads on that. So like uh, the Young Earth uh, uh, sequence of episodes we did, we did three episodes on that. We did two episodes on the Great Flood. And whenever we look at one of these, um, one of these mysteries, we, I try to say, okay, let's look at the faith question first and see what our range of options is uh, regarding, oh, Flat Earth would be another one you might want to check out. But I, I look at the range of options 
um, for what would the faith permit? And then I'll do a second element, which may be one or more episode where I say, now let's look at what the science has to say about which of the permitted faith options is most likely true. And in the further resources for each episode, I will um, have, you know, links to books and videos and articles and things like that um, that address those topics, not just from the faith perspective, but also from the scientific perspective. So I would say looking at those, it would be a good way to get resources tailored to specific uh, uh, scientific questions interacting with apologetics. In terms of um, of additional thing, additional resources, there's lots of great books on science and other resources on science. Uh, one of my favorites is a book called The Day We, it's either The Day We Found the Universe or The Day We Discovered the Universe, but it is a fascinating uh, history of 19th and 20th century astronomy and how it just completely changed our understanding of the universe. Um, it's very well written. It is a entertaining, interesting, very interesting story about uh, the development of modern astronomy, because originally it was not realized that we live in a galaxy that is a tiny part of a sea of other galaxies. That was not known. It was thought that the stars around us in the Milky Way fill the whole universe. Right? They're the only, or the, I should say, they are the only thing in the universe. And and what, even though you could look up through a telescope and see the Andromeda galaxy, which is the nearest big galaxy to us, um, people didn't realize what it was. It was thought that they called it because it's got a spiral shape, it and other galaxies, they called spiral nebula. And they thought, this is like another nebula that we would find here in the Milky Way. So they didn't realize um, that the that the spiral nebula were actual galaxies like ours. They thought, it, oh, it's just a little local. It's just a solar system forming over there. And then through a process of discovery that took time, including a really big debate in the early 20th century, we had it's like one of those moments and that you sometimes see in film where someone has this amazing revelation and they push the camera in on the person at the same time as they back up and they push the focus in on a person as they back up and you get this disorienting whoa effect where everything seems to expand around the person as they're moving towards the screen we had one of those moments as a community astronomically speaking where suddenly those spiral nebula are vastly far away and just as big as we are. And that's when that's the day we discovered the universe, so to speak. It's when we found out that we're not the only thing in it. And so that's a great book. Another book that's a lot of fun to read is by uh, Michio Kaku, K-A-K-U. It's called The Physics of the Impossible. And in it, he looks at a variety, he, he looks at a variety of things that are um, commonly said to be impossible and then looks at the extent to which that's actually true. And he breaks them up into three categories. The first category is things that are only currently impossible, but that we will probably be able to do within a hundred years. 
And that includes things like invisibility. And then there are class two impossibilities, which are currently impossible, but we can probably eventually or may be able eventually to learn to do because they don't contradict any known law of physics. And that includes things, even though it may take us hundreds or thousands or even millions of years to figure it out, um, that includes things like faster than light travel. And then there are class three impossibilities, which uh, are ones that he says he thinks are actually impossible or will always remain impossible unless there's a revision in the laws of physics. And perpetual motion machine, there's only two of those, and perpetual motion machines are one of them. That is where you can design a machine that will run forever and you can extract useful energy from it. Um, so that's a fun book. And along the way, he teaches you the scientific principles that are involved in this. Now, this is a popular level book. It is not always precise. And he's going to raise things as possibilities, like here's a fun thing to think about that a lot of people would say, yeah, but you're not dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's on that. You're being a little loosey-goosey in how you're explaining some of these ideas. They're not all as possible as he makes some of them sound. Um, then uh, I, I, another resource, and I actually referenced this one earlier in this live stream, um, Sabina Hassenfelder's channel on YouTube is a great one. I don't agree with her on everything. As, uh, some, I mean, sometimes she's not, she's bringing in aspects that are not um, scientific, but more philosophical or theological. But in general, um, she is really good. Uh, and I, she's a, like I mentioned, she's a physicist from Germany. Uh, she tries to explain, it's not always easy to follow everything she says, but she tries to explain scientific concepts without a lot of gobbledygook and without a lot of math or anything like that. And, and she tries to cut through some of the bad explanations you hear, even other scientists giving. And I find her very refreshing, and I, I like her channel. Um, there are others. Uh, PBS has a series um, called, uh, is it PBS Cosmos? Um, the, it's by an astronomer uh, named, um, or astrophysicist named Matthew O'Dowd, um, and, and it's pretty good. Also, Fermilab has a, a series of lectures or, or or actually just little YouTube videos um, that they put on. Uh, some of my favorites are the series by Don Lincoln, who is a physicist at Fermilab. And he also is one of these, like O'Dowd and like Hassenfelder, is a, a, a science communicator where he is an actual scientist and he's trying to explain things in a way that lay people can understand. And I like all three of those. Um, so those are some uh, ones to check out. Let's see. We're getting up. We're going on two hours now. Uh, let me take a look and see what else we've got here after I hydrate real quick. So let's, oops, now I need to scroll back. And it seems that the chat is scaling. So I may have difficulty finding my way back. But, you know, that's what happens when you're moving around in a TARDIS. Oh, yeah, dramatically expanded. Okay, so I'm going to just plop down somewhere and see where, what questions are starting. Um, Discarded Youth says, what advice do you have to offer Western Catholics who are drawn to the spirituality of the Eastern Orthodox and or Eastern Catholic churches 
and are considering converting. Thanks. Well, so I would say um, we don't make our decisions based on what spirituality we're attracted to. We make our decisions based on what's true. And the truth is that Jesus founded his church with certain elements that are constitutive of its nature, including a Petrine charism. And if we were to uh, break communion with that Petrine charism, we are breaking communion with, uh, with, depending on the language you want to use of membership or full incorporation, we're breaking communion with Christ's church and we're no longer fully in communion with his church. And to do that knowingly and deliberately is, is something that will endanger your salvation. So I would say, um, rather than, than committing a schismatic act, the thing to do is make sure that you are, um, you're solid on the essentials and that includes understanding the office of the Pope. And then uh, look for uh, ways to uh, understand and appreciate the different elements of diversity in Christ's church. And if you're attracted to Eastern uh, modalities, that's fine. Um, God does not give us all the same spirituality. We have different personalities. We have different inclinations. We can have different spiritualities at different times in our lives because God doesn't like give us a stamp at birth that says, this is your spirituality. We grow and change and can be attracted to different things at different times, depending on where we are in our journey with God. And our goal is always to grow closer to him and to bring other people closer to him. And so, um, so there's nothing wrong with appreciating aspects of, of Eastern spirituality, like Eastern liturgies, Eastern icons, uh, even many theological ideas from the uh, that are Eastern ways of expressing things are not incompatible with um, uh, with the Catholic faith, even if they're expressed in somewhat different language. Or you know, so there, I don't see any problem with um, from a position of being solid in your Catholic identity, which is being based on the truth. Uh, this is how Christ set up his church, and I need to be in communion with it, in full communion with it. Um, if you're solid on that, then it's perfectly fine to explore uh, Eastern Catholic spirituality and even Eastern Orthodox and uh, even other forms of Oriental Christianity and see what elements that are compatible with the Catholic faith you, you find helpful and productive and can learn from and incorporate into your own. But remaining centered on truth and using critical thinking and not being led around by your emotions and your preferences is what's key because truth is truth is truth. It's where we need to be. Linda D says, as a widower of eight plus years, your words are a great comfort. And so very true. I feel the same way about being with others. I can be anywhere and do anything when I have a job to do. <laughs> and yes, Linda, I uh, and my sympathies to you as well, Linda, and to everybody who's lost anybody, whether through divorce or death or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, I can. If I have a job to do, I am fine in social settings. If I'm if I'm giving a talk, if I'm calling a dance, if I'm serving up, you know, hors d'oeuvres at a party, whatever it is, give me a job and I can do it. 
but small talk is uh, is is not my thing. It is some people's things. I was uh, I was I don't think my sister will mind me saying this um, <clears throat> since she's not a public figure, but um, she has told me that she her inclinations are like mine, and um, like going to going to a party, an unstructured party, is challenging for her, and she would have. Um, she she actually had it suddenly became a lot easier for her when she had her daughter, my niece, because suddenly it's she has an instant excuse. Oh, I need to deal with my toddler right now. And that would solve a lot of issues for her in party situations. Um, and on the other hand, her husband, uh, my brother-in-law, is in her words, is social butterfly. He thrives on going to parties and networking and talking to people. And he loves that stuff. So it's just, it's just another illustration of how we're all different and it's all valid, all the different, there's no, there's no better or worse here. Um, it, it's, it's just differences of personal inclination and they all contribute to, uh, to uh, helping humanity work. We all have our contributions. It is, uh, you know, if we were all like the Borg, and all had exactly the same dispositions, we would be a lot weaker um, as a uh, as a as a species. The fact that we are diverse and find ways to work together—I mean, I, there there needs to be a fundamental baseline of humanity, and there is—it's human nature. And there needs to be a certain cultural baseline as well to let people work together as a group. But as long as those are in place, our differences are actually things that allow us to each make contributions and they make us stronger as a group. It's like on a genetic level, if, a, if you had a society of clones and a disease comes along that is not, that, that, the, that the clones are vulnerable to, the fact they all have the same immune system means they're all going to get smashed by the disease. Having di- genetic diversity in a population helps prevent that from happening. And similarly, having intellectual and dispositional diversity in a population also contributes to the population being stronger and more adaptable to changing situations. Chris JPF 33 says, is it theologically sound to say that God's mercy is so great that it is possible that Hitler could be in heaven? Absolutely. Absolutely. God's mercy is so great it, that it is infinite. And as a result, no matter what you've done, uh, God uh, can be merciful and can forgive it and will if you repent. So if Hitler repented, um, even in the last seconds of life, as the, you know, or milliseconds of life, as uh, after the bullet went through his brain and he's bleeding out, um, if, uh, if he's, um, and yes, on Mysterious World, we will talk about different theories about what happened to Hitler. Uh, but um, absolutely. Um, it, it, Hitler was a finite creature, and um, and no matter what sins he committed, God's infinite mercy is capable of forgiving them if he repents, even if it's in a mysterious way at the last moment of life. Dith says, question, I accept that the Catholic Church is the true church, but still struggle with the Mary side of things. Should I hold off on conversion until I come to terms with it? Um, I think the the I, I can sympathize with this because I had a similar experience. Um, some of the Marian uh, teachings were the among the last that I got comfortable with, um, and that co- process of gaining comfort continued 
into my experience as a Catholic. And what I would say is it essentially is like what we discussed earlier. You need to be able to accept the church's teachings on Mary or, or the church's teachings on anything. Doesn't mean you have to be comfortable. Doesn't mean you have to feel confidence and robust and all that. And it doesn't mean you need to wait until you are. Once you recognize the truth, even if you're not comfortable with it, it it's it makes sense to proceed unless there's a reason not to. Just like if you if let's say you've got an illness and you recognize the truth is that I need to go get this particular treatment, even though I may not feel comfortable getting that treatment. The thing to do is go get the treatment. Unless, you know, there's some countervailing reason, like the hospital is closed or something. Um, And in the same way, if you recognize the truth of the Catholic faith, even if you're not completely comfortable with everything yet, well, that's that's okay. You don't have to be comfortable with everything. Um, And, you know, people's emotions change over time and everybody goes through periods of comfort and discomfort. And that's part of the human experience. If you, if you recognize and accept the truth of the faith, then unless there's some competing reason, like maybe I can bring my family along and help them see the truth as well. If I delay a little bit, um, then the thing to do is just go for it. If you've recognized the truth and there's nothing like that hold, that would hold you back, um, go ahead and uh, and and embrace it, and uh, and your emotions will adjust, you know, with time. And and I had a very similar experience, so I I speak from personal experience in that regard, as well as from the from the cognitive perspective on that. Let's see, Robert Willows says. Jimmy Aiken, out of out of wonder, when someone sneezes, we say "bless you." Is there some sort of blessing, faith-wise, or is it how I was taught something nice to say? Um, well, uh, so when when someone sneezes and you say "bless you" or "God bless you," it is uh, it's a linguistic act. You're you're uttering words, and the question like any um linguistic act is the the key question that's involved is what do you mean when you say those words if you me if you're just trying to be polite then polite is all you're being on the other hand if you if you mean god bless you then that's a prayer and and god can bless that person in response to your prayer so um so it 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 it's like any other speech act you have to you have to determine its meaning based on the intention of the person if the person is intending polite is just intending to be polite then being polite is all they're doing but if they mean more than that if they actually are hoping and wishing and asking that god bestow a blessing on someone like so that they're cured of whatever is causing them to sneeze or anything else they may need, then that's in, then that speech act becomes a prayer and God can respond accordingly. I've been going for a little more than two hours now, and I'd set two hours as kind of a goal. So I'm going to go soon, but let me take another question or two. I'm just scrolling down to see uh, someone who hasn't asked one yet. And even though this one is not flagged as a question, uh, das Mysteryman 12 uh, says, I have a question about the Outlander series slash books and canon law. Uh, and then there's a spoiler warning. 
So, spoiler warning, five, four, you can mute, five, four, three, two, one. Claire, the the main character from the 1940s, Catholic and already married, goes back in time to the eight, to 18th century Scotland. She meets Jamie, also Catholic, and marries him so he could be under so she could be under his protection. They consummate the marriage, but later on she goes back to the 1940s to her husband, also Catholic, never got an annulment or a divorce. Later it she she somehow goes back to the 18th century to Jamie, still married to him. Which one of those marriages was canonically valid? Okay. So Canon, the current edition of the Code of Canon Law is not configured to answer this question for us. And so as a result, the answer is uh, debatable. It's something uh, in order to ultimately know the answer to this question, you would need to get what's known as an authentic interpretation from the Pontifical uh, uh, Commission for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts. So there is actually a mechanism that the church has by which you could get a ruling on this, but the uh, the code is currently underdetermined in that it doesn't deal with time. It doesn't establish principles in a way that would fully determine the answer for us. Having said that, one argument would be that when Claire leaves the 1940s and goes back to um, to the 18th century, I think it said. Yeah, 18th century Scotland. So she goes back to the 1700s and her husband is no longer alive from her frame of reference because her frame of reference is now in the 1700s and her husband is no longer alive. And because he's not alive in the 1700s. So in terms of her experience, He's no longer alive, and that can mean that she's no longer married to him, in which case she would be free to marry Jamie. Um, the And it would be a valid marriage. And then if she goes back to the 1940s, now I sh- let me um, reverse the arrow of time on that just to explain, just to explain that principle a little more. Suppose it's the 1940s and you're married to someone and you're progressing forward in time in the normal way, and then your spouse dies. Well, in your frame of reference, your spouse is not alive, your former spouse, and so you're no longer married. They are your former spouse. You're free to marry someone else. This is the argument we're exploring is essentially the same thing with the arrow of time flipped. uh, Claire has gone back to a new frame of reference, and in that frame of reference in the 1700s, her her spouse that she was married to is not alive. Therefore, she is not married to him, and she's free to marry somebody else like Jamie. So then that happens. Now she goes back to the 1940s. Jamie is no longer alive. She's no longer married to Jamie, but the person she did say vows with is alive in the 1940s, so she would be married to that guy automatically. And um, and so that is one way of interpreting it. If you have exchanged uh, matrimonial consent with someone, then anytime you're alive in a wayfaring state in the same frame of reference, temporally, you're married to that person. 
And, uh, you know, so if it's possible for you to fulfill the marital act with the person morally, uh, then you would be free to do so. Um, The question gets more interesting. If you now you could say, well, wait a minute, what if um, what if the marriage perdured, even though the spouse is not alive in the same time frame? Well, that's a possibility. So the idea here would be um, that Jamie is married to her 20th century husband. She goes back to the 18th century, and somehow she's still married to that guy. Well, one could imagine a scenario where that would be true. It is not what the what the Catholic Church has taught. So this would be within the realm of speculation theologically, but I think it's a I think it's a possible speculation. In order for canon law to recognize this principle, you would need to be in a situation where time travel is common enough in to where Claire could get back to her 20th century husband because the current formulation of canon law, which is a matter of church teaching and is endorsed actually in the Bible, where if you're proceeding through time and your spouse dies, you're not married anymore to that person and you're free to marry someone else. That's based on the fact that um, that spouses, once they go, um, they don't come back in the same time frame. And so uh, so they've left, they're, they're no longer alive, and that's why you're free to marry. Um, but what if we complicate that situation? What if Lazarus had been married? And, well, you know, most Jewish men were. Maybe even though Lazarus doesn't have a wife that's mentioned in Scripture, maybe he had one. And then when Lazarus dies, his wife is free. She could marry someone else. It'd be really quick, but she could marry someone else. And then Jesus comes along, resurrects Lazarus. The normal way to look at it is that marriage has revived. You know, you wouldn't expect Lazarus and Mrs. Lazarus to get married again. It would, um, it would, it would be expected. They're still spouses. They don't need to get remarried. But the question is, what was the mechanism that allowed the marriage to revive? Did the marriage somehow perdure through the death of Lazarus, where he's no longer alive? That would be hard to to justify biblically because in exegetically because it's understood in both testaments your spouse dies you're not married to them anymore and Lazarus really did die um so so I would have a hard time saying within the biblical worldview that Lazarus was still married and the marriage perdured through his death what I would say what I think is more likely is that um that because these two parties had exchanged matrimonial consent to each other. Um, they agreed to be married, and that's a you know binding thing as long as they're in a wayfaring state, as long as it's pre- they're not yet glorified in their resurrected form. Um, then, if Lazarus comes back to life, he's still bound by that matrimonial consent he exchanged with his wife, and she reciprocally is bound. Because from her perspective, 
um, the uh, Lazarus was away for a while, but now he's back and she had agreed to be his wife. Um, so I would, I would, so I think that's a more um, plausible reading that it's consent based rather than something else is perduring through a, through a period where they're not both alive in the same time frame. But it raises an interesting question. What if Mrs. Lazarus got married while Lazarus was in the tomb? So she was free to exchange matrimonial consent with someone else. And she did. And then Lazarus comes back. Well, prima facie, meaning just at first glance, it would seem she's legitimately married to two different guys. Now, and, and this would be a form of polygamy. And the specific form it's known as is polyandry, where a woman has two husbands and, or more than one husband. And, um, and that is something that would have been unimaginable to people in Jewish culture. I mean, the, in the Old Testament period, especially, they tolerated uh, uh, polygamy of the form where a man can have more than one wife, um, but uh, which is a form known as polygyny, um, having more than one woman, more than one wife. But whereas Jewish people sometimes practiced polygyny, they never practiced polyandry. And it would have been culturally abhorrent to them to think of one woman having two husbands simultaneously. but. It doesn't mean it's impossible. What ancient Jews found abhorrent, I mean, they were trained to find pork abhorrent and bacon is tasty. So um, so just what they would have found abhorrent is not a strict test here. And so it would really come down to um, if, if the consent within a frame, if the consent plus frame of reference model is true, then um, whether one possible test for the validity of that hypothesis would be, what do you think of, would it be possible for someone not advisable or anything like that, but would it be possible for someone to end up with two spouses through this kind of situation? And um, even though the church does have teachings about, um, about monogamy, they are framed in such a way that um, it doesn't, they don't cover every single possibility. And they specifically don't cover the possibility of what happens if your spouse dies and you get married to someone else, and then Jesus brings your spouse back to life in a wayfaring state. So that's, an, that's not a question the church has addressed. And it, at, consequently, you could achieve the same effect through time travel. So what if... Claire gets married. Claire, Claire is married in the 1940s. She goes back to the 1700s, marries Jamie, and then brings Jamie back to the 1940s with her. Is she married to two men at once? Um, and I would say, just like the question of what happens if Mrs. Lazarus gets married and then Jesus brings Lazarus back to life is open, doctrinally speaking, because the church hasn't addressed it. I would say the same thing is true of Claire and Jamie and her 1940s husband, if they all end up together in the same temporal frame of reference. So don't have an answer for you uh, that I can say this is the definite answer, but those are some of the relevant considerations. And let's see, I'll do one more question. And I'm going to scroll all the way to the bottom because uh, something may have come up that uh, at least there's I won't explain the whole logic behind it, but I'm trying to be nice. 
And I'm going to scroll up to the person who's most recently asked a question that I can easily spot as a question. And who has not asked one. And here's one. Luke Crossman says, question, advice for someone struggling, trying to find out which denomination is correct. I'm former LDS. Uh, for a few years, uh, looking into Catholicism, Lutheranism, and Eastern Orthodoxy. I worry too much about what group to join. Okay. Um, so uh, thank you very much, Luke, and I'll, I'll give you the, auth- the uh, assistance I can. Um, now, for people who may not be aware, although I think at this point most people would be aware, LDS is Latter-day Saint, so, or what's commonly called Mormon. So Luke has a Mormon background, and he's been looking into um, uh, Trinitarian forms of Christianity, like Catholicism, Lutheranism, and Orthodoxy, and good for you. I mean, from my perspective, Luke, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a move in, towards genuine, authentic, historic Christianity. And that's a sign of God's grace working in your life. Uh, and that's and that's wonderful that that's happening and that you've cooperated with it interactively considering this. Now, as a Catholic and as a Catholic apologist, I tell you my conclusion would be that you should become Catholic. Um, the In terms of general principle, well, uh, I believe in truth-based religious decisions. So even though there may be um, personal preferences or emotions pulling you one way or the other, my inclination is say, um, look at, look at, do your best to determine what the truth is. Uh, try to set aside emotion and preference and look at, look at the arguments and apply critical thinking. And um, from a Catholic point of view, I would say that there's actually, there's actually a lot of agreement between all three of those uh, groups that you named. There may be others that you're considering, but, um, you know, between Catholicism, Lutheranism, and Orthodoxy, there's, there's a lot, there's quite a considerable amount of agreement. And that means, including things like justification. Um, as you may know, the Catholic Church a number of years ago signed a joint declaration on justification that said, in essence, that when you tr- learn to translate our language uh, between the different communities, and when you take into, uh, into account the fact we emphasize different things to different degrees, um, then we're really much more in agreement than is commonly recognized, and we don't need to be, the remaining differences are such that they shouldn't fundamentally divide us. Um, but if you want information on that topic in particular, you could check out a book I wrote called The Drama of Salvation. Now, setting aside that, so you have a broadly sacramental understanding of all three of these groups. What, um, I mean, they all believe in baptismal regeneration and things like that. They believe in the real presence, even if they believe some of the particulars are different. Um, Or in the case of orthodoxy, they're a little less specific on what the particulars are. Um, But the fundamental thing that that, uh, divides them is the office of the papacy. Um, Jesus established his church on Peter. He created a special Petrine charism that he deemed the church to need in the first century. And if it needed it then, it's going to continue to need it. It's like anything else. Jesus gave the disciples the authority to forgive sins. Well, people haven't stopped sinning. They're going to need, um, they're going to need, uh, absolution in the future, not just in the first century. So there's going to be an ongoing sacrament of confession. In the same way, um, if there needs to be a, uh, a coordinating leader 
for the church in the first century after Jesus goes back to heaven, well, then there's going to need to be one in later ages too. And so uh, there's uh, a Petrine charism that has uh, been passed on in the church. And the question is going to be, whose interpretation of the Petrine charism is most reasonable? And I would say that the God is more likely to guard, to guide the group of Christians into the correct understanding of a divinely instituted office if they actually are in communion with the divinely instituted office that God is working through. I mean, it's more likely, um, to my mind, that uh, that if you are in union with an institution that God has created to work through in the world, you're going to have a better understanding on average over time if you're actually in union with that divine institution than if you're in a state of separation from it. And a biblical parallel I would point to in that regard is the temple. Um, God said, okay, I've chosen Jerusalem. This is where I'm going to put my name. This is where my house is going to be. And if you want to worship me, you need to be doing it through this temple. This is where um, this is where I'm working. This is where I'm manifesting. This is, this is the institution I'm working through. And when the uh, 10 uh, northern tribes seceded from the union and set up their rival temple, some of them said, you know, actually, God kind of said we need to we need to worship at Jerusalem and we don't we shouldn't be worshiping in Samaria. And um, and and the people who said that and the Judeans were right the ones who were in union with God's actual institution that he had set up for as a, as the national worship center were correct and the people who were in separation and set up their own independent worship centers like at uh, Dan and Bethel and so forth they were wrong um and in the same way if it's established that God set up within the church a petrine institution for its government um, then he's most likely to guide the people who are in communion with that institution into a correct understanding of it, as opposed to people who have separated from it. So I would make a prima facie case on that basis for um, the Catholic understanding of the papacy is more likely to be true than the Orthodox understanding of the papacy or the Lutheran understanding of the papacy. And, <clears throat> you know, there are other considerations that one could go through, but just on a on a kind of prima facie level, that's how I would and how his, how I actually did when I was becoming Catholic. Because I looked at Lutheranism, I looked at Orthodoxy, I looked at other uh, groups as well, and I concluded that, um, in 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 fact, in part because of the arguments I just gave, that the Catholic understanding of these matters was the most likely one to be true. And so, on that basis, I became Catholic, even though it meant. Uh, some me not being quite comfortable at first with everything because comfort isn't what's important. Truth is, um, if you'd like to read more about all that, I would suggest checking out on my website, jimmyakin.com. I have a um, a paper called "Why Be Catholic: An Exercise for Evangelicals," which goes into the papacy and and its basis biblically and some of what we just covered. Um, also, I wrote a piece. I believe it is called Why I'm Not Eastern Orthodox, but if you Google Jimmy Aiken, Why I'm Not Eastern Orthodox, that should come up. I forget if I have it on my own website or if it's at catholic.com. It may be at both. Um, but I hope that's helpful. <clears throat> and uh, please let me know if I can be of further assistance.
And with that, uh, we've been going for almost two and a half hours, and my voice is largely held up. And I want to be respectful of other people's time, uh, but I want to wish everybody uh, who's listening, either live or in the future, because this is going to be archived on YouTube, um, have a very merry uh, rest of the Christmas day and Christmas season. And my God bless you always. And I'll talk to you in the future. Howdy, folks. This is Jimmy Aiken with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Here on Mysterious World, we've recently added video to the podcast, and we need to continue improving it with better cameras, lights, and editing, as well as continuing to produce our weekly look at the fascinating mysteries you enjoy. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you, and we ask you to consider increasing your support if you're able. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one. Every gift counts. Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas, and remember, your gifts may be tax-deductible. To find out more, just go to sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season.